The following AGIO-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pervic Kinase Deficiency. My name is Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and your guest host for today's episode. Today, we're going to be learning about the history of pervic kinase deficiency. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. David Nathan to the podcast. Dr. Nathan is a pioneer in the field of hematology and has had many publications and some of the earliest research work on the pathophysiology of pyruvate kinase deficiency and has also made remarkable discoveries in thalassemia and sickle cell disease, including treatment with continuous iron chelation, hydroxyurea for treatment in sickle cell disease, and in the treatment of childhood cancer. During my training in hematology, Dr. Nathan has been an important teacher and mentor and has been key in my own involvement in research in rare hemolytic anemias, including pyruvate kinase deficiency. Dr. Nathan is past president of the American Society of Hematology, prior physician-in-chief at Boston Children's Hospital, and the prior president of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So welcome, Dr. Nathan, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm pleased to introduce Jill Welly, who is joining us on the podcast today. Jill was diagnosed with pyruvate kinase deficiency around the time that it was first described and has been, in her words, thriving with PK deficiency since that time. She's married with children and has a professional career and has been a regular on the podcast, and we're so happy to have her join us for today's discussion. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Glad to be back. Dr. Nathan, my first question today is for you to tell us a little bit about how pyruvate kinase deficiency was first discovered. Well, it's a it's a wonderful story. The common congenital hemolytic anemia is hereditary spherocytosis, and that's been long, been known for a long time as a disorder treatable by splenectomy. If the spleen is removed, Although spherocytes remain in the blood, the hemoglobin immediately rises, the the reticulocyte count, which is the number of young cells, declines, and the patient is really cured of the disease. Now, there are dangers with splenectomy and all that, but there there were other cases called non-spherocytic hemolytic anemia in the great classification done by Selwyn and Dacey in the 1950s that were different. They were different because the patients did not respond in the same way to splenectomy. In fact, very often, although the hemoglobin might stabilize, the reticulocyte count would rise. And that was a peculiar kind of hemolytic anemia that they called non-spherocytic hemolytic anemia. And it wasn't explained until 1962, when Tanaka and Valentine, Tanaka was a Japanese fellow working in Bill Valentine's lab in Los Angeles, identified pyruvate kinase deficiency as the cause of one of the commonest kind of non-spherocytic 
hemolytic anemia. And Tanaka went back to Japan for a while to work with Miwa. And those are the three names that really began the field. Now, Frank Oski and I really didn't know much about what Tanaka and Valentine had done. was a fellow at the Children's Hospital working for the great Louis K. Diamond. And I was a sort of an independent, very young hematologist at the Brigham, uh, internist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital when Oski brought me a smear of a patient with a bizarre hemolytic anemia. That patient had a splenectomy. And he had a reticulocyte count of 65%, which was enormous. That's the fraction of the young red cells in the peripheral blood. 65% of them were reticulocytes. And the morphology of that blood was bizarre. It was so bizarre that I told him to go back and make another smear because it must be an artifact, at which point I got a phone call from Dr. Diamond saying that he wasn't interested in my opinion about his technicians. He was interested only in my judgment about what was wrong with the patient and stopped sending slides back because he wasn't going to stand for it. And since he partially paid my salary for that at that time, I decided I would do exactly what Dr. Diamond told me, sat down with Oski and began to go over this case. And we, by this time, actually, we did know about Valentine and we measured pyruvate kinase in that child, and it was virtually absent. So we knew we were onto something with this family, and that really began my whole career in pediatric hematology. I, began, I was so fascinated by that case with the bizarre morphology and also the fact that these cells had a really serious defect, then that not only they lacked the enzyme, but they also couldn't hold on to potassium, which meant they couldn't hold on to water, which meant they became terribly dehydrated. And although splenectomy had helped this kid, probably, it certainly didn't cure him, and we had to find out much more about it. And that's what really led me into my own career. And I, be I decided to leave internal medicine and come to the Boston Children's Hospital where I could see more patients like this and by the way, Oski and I published that first case in 1964, a couple of years after Tanaka and Valentine. And in 1971, another fellow joined us, Bill Menser, who did a marvelous job showing really why these patients have hemolytic anemia. That the cells, which can't make energy well because of the loss of pyruvate kinase, leak potassium, get dehydrated, go into the spleen, which is a very unfriendly environment for damaged red cells, and if they emerge from the spleen, die in the liver. A lot of them will die in the spleen, but it's not curable because those cells will die in the liver if they don't die in the spleen. So though the, the children get a, an extra burst of hemoglobin, they still have to make an enormous number of red cells. The reticulocytes demand a lot of energy because they're still producing so much. And so they really feel the pyruvate kinase deficiency much more than mature red cells do. That's the bizarre nature of it. And that, that brought me into the field, the whole field of how red cells die in various diseases. 
And that's what got me into hemoglobin disorder. What's the result of a mutation of hemoglobin on the metabolism of a red cell? And it locked me into pediatric hematology, but I didn't have a treatment for these patients. Splenectomy was only partially effective. We had to figure out how someday we could get a drug that could replace the enzyme in some way or make the enzyme work better. What we didn't know at the time was that there are many forms of pyruvate kinase, that some that completely wipe out any enzyme protein at all, and some that just make the enzyme dysfunctional. And it's this dysfunction that can actually be treatable. If there's no enzyme at all, then of course it isn't treatable because there's nothing to treat. The only way to treat it is with gene therapy. But in those patients fortunate enough, it's unfortunate to get pyruvate kinase deficiency, but if it's if they're fortunate enough to make some protein, a drug could probably improve it. And that's when Rachel Grace came into my life and this disorder. And she's been pioneering that. And I would leave the rest of the story to her. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. Dr. Nepin, as the diagnosis for pyruvate kinase deficiency became easier to make, or it was more clear how to make a diagnosis, were you able to identify patients in the practice who were thought to have another hemolytic anemia or an undiagnosed hemolytic anemia and then come to a diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency, even patients that had been in the practice for years? In fact, because of our work with pyruvate kinase deficiency, we became a little center for undiagnosed hemolytic anemia. And I saw a lot of lot more patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, but also other patients that sort of imitated pyruvate kinase deficiency but didn't have it, had another disorder, let's say, of the red cell membrane with loss of potassium as the main problem. Those cells were dehydrated and couldn't survive. And then we began to get patients who had another kind of channelopathy, red cells that couldn't keep sodium out and sodium would flow in with water and blow them up. That was another form of non-spherocytic hemolytic anemia. Yeah, we saw a lot of very different kinds of hemolytic anemia. Then we started beginning to see the abnormal hemoglobins, and they cause the same potassium loss. In fact, that's a common pathway of the destruction of the red cells. It's even the destruction of red cells in the blood bank. They age, and they lose potassium and water, and they are completely destroyed by the spleen. I, uh, I think a pyruvate kinase deficiency introduced me to the idea of the great heterogeneity of what pathways we have 
will somehow get mutated in rare families. And that's how we learn about the biology of the red cell. And that's really what has attracted me to the field of pediatric hematology. I think I'm learning about how biology works by seeing these patients. And I know it's important biology if it creates a patient, whereas if if just hunting around for mutations doesn't interest me at all because it doesn't affect patients. We're going to come back to you in just a minute, Dr. Nathan, but I want to turn it over now to Jill and ask what are some of your earliest memories about parvae kinase deficiency? Really good question, Dr. Grace. I've been reflecting on this because obviously I was born with it. I was born in 1961, a year after this was a label was put to this. But as a young girl under the age of 10, I just knew something was different and something was off. I looked different. I was tired. The compare contrast was very evident because I have a twin sister and we're fraternal and we look totally different, not only just on our features, but our coloring. She had olive skin and dark eyes, and I was incredibly jaundiced, a lot of the yellow, yellowing of the eyes. And, and back in those days, we had our school pictures. My sister and I were always put on the camera together with our heads and our ears next to each other. And so I look back on those pictures from 55 plus years ago, and it's just night and day. And growing up with more siblings, who by the way, don't have this disorder, when my parents would introduce all five of us children, they're like, oh, by the way, that's the sick one. I was always labeled as being sick. And remembering at a young age, going to the doctor constantly and trying to navigate through this. I just felt different. I looked different. And trying to keep up was a challenge. And and that'll lead me to my diagnosis a little bit later. But I just knew something was off and there was not a label to it. In fact, the doctors thought I had leukemia for a number of years. They didn't know how to treat it. And how old were you when a diagnosis was made? And how was the diagnosis made for you? It's interesting, Dr. Nathan, you brought up 1971 with the Bill Menser. That was actually the year that I was diagnosed. It was at, I grew up in a tiny little town of about 100 people. So you can imagine the, the resources were next to none in terms of medical knowledge. I was brought to a Minneapolis-St. Paul area for a week of a hospital safe stay for a diagnosis and treatment really wasn't much for treatment then. And it was at age 10 in 1971. And they presented my parents with this one little page document that had previous canis on it for PKD. And my parents were like, it was like speaking another language. What is this? Never heard of it. And there really wasn't any at that time, any treatment about then what do you do about it? All they said is what I recall, and of course, I'm a young girl, couldn't really absorb all of this, was that she may have to get, her spleen may get enlarged, and just really not what she can do. What they did tell them to do was to get me off of the iron treatment tablets. They had me on iron for 10 years because they were dealing with some sort of anemia, but they didn't know the type of anemia. Obviously, that was mistreatment. 
And something that I'm dealing with in terms of treatment today is to reduce the ferritin iron overload. But yes, I was 10 years old and looking back on that, knowing what we know now, there would have been a whole different direction in terms of my treatment and what I could have done for a better quality of life in terms of blood transfusions. I think that diagnostic journey, although clearly so much more challenging years ago, still happens now for many people with pyruvate kinase deficiency that the so that patients have the are have the wrong diagnosis or a, a diagnosis of a different type of hemolytic anemia. And for many patients who are transfused, the pyruvate kinase enzyme activity can't be measured easily. And the hope, I think, now is with more availability of genetic testing and access, hopefully, to enzyme testing that patients who, where it's being considered, will be tested and come to a diagnosis faster than, for sure, for that you experienced. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Nathan to talk to a little bit with us about how the understanding of the pathophysiology of pyruvate kinase deficiency has contributed to disease management over the years. You had mentioned earlier about the understanding and some of the early work, and how do you feel like that's helped where we are today or more recent developments? Well, I think the only treatment that we in our in my era came up with was splenectomy. We didn't have any other approach except not to do things like treating people with iron for non-iron dependent anemia. But that was very common in those days. That physicians would just, it may not look like iron deficiency, but it has to be because that's the common anemia in children. And that was a really a, a very common story. So avoiding stupidity was a very important part of what we could do to point out that, and also we could screen families, we could do the enzyme and show that if the patient's parents were carriers and give much better genetic instruction to them about what their risks were of having another child. We, we didn't consider, without any effective medication, we really didn't consider anything but transfusion for periods when these children when they got a, a viral infection, viral suppression of the bone marrow fo- following uh, such an infection, and would, they would get extremely anemic very quickly because if, you, if those children can't make reticulocytes, they will really get anemic very quickly. So we had to instruct the parents to make sure that if, this, if the child was yellow, as Jill was, and then suddenly loses the yellow color, that's actually an emergency because that means that there are no red cells dying because there are no red cells and get her quickly for to attention. In other words, having a nice pale skin is not a good idea for a kid with pyruvate kinase deficiency. They ought to look yellow and sallow. We could do those things, but we didn't have anything else to do. Advise again. We, could, we didn't even have prenatal diagnosis. We, we couldn't do that because we didn't have DNA. Uh, to deal with. So there wasn't any way of preventing the children. Uh, just the risk was 25% with every pregnancy. And we had, they had to know that. I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about management and how it's changed over the years for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency. And you had just mentioned about transfusions, Dr. Nathan, and how transfusions were really just kept in reserve during patients and having acute 
episodes of hemolysis, but not as ongoing treatment. And I'm curious to hear from both of you how you think the thought about transfusions has evolved over time and how that links also to management with chelation therapy and strategies around chelation. There was a desperate need to develop drugs that could be given to patients with iron overload that did not require parenteral administration, that is, administration beyond the oral area, the the oral method. We pioneered the right way to give it, but it was still very awkward. That would have been a very tough additional problem. But we spent a lot of time trying to get oral iron chelators for kids with different kinds of hemolytic anemia, particularly thalassemia that requires lifelong transfusion. I I wonder, though, if some of the lack of chelation in patients was just a lack of screening patients for iron overload, too, and under recognition that's a problem in patients who have pyruvate kinase deficiency, even if they're not being regularly transfused. That with So we see iron overload in most or at least half of people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency, and it's seen with some frequency in people who've never received a transfusion. And so I think with Without recognition of that, patients aren't screened and have iron loading that develops over time and may not be realized until there's significant liver iron. Yeah, I'm just saying that in my experience, I did not feel it necessary to go ahead and chelate because chelation was such an awkward therapy at the time. Only recently have we gotten good oral iron chelators that would allow the doctor to go ahead and try to to eliminate the iron overload. The problem for the patient with pyruvate kinase that I saw was not iron overload, it was anemia. Now, there is, in fact, increased iron absorption. There's no question about that. But that wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was just fatigue and and the, the anemia itself. So, I don't know how much you're chelating patients now because you have oral iron chelators that are much easier to tolerate. I didn't have those. That was another, that's another whole story to get them to get into that market because these are rare patients and they didn't want to go make a drug for a few hundred patients. That didn't make any sense to them. I'm interested to hear from you about your perspective on how the management of pyruvate kinase deficiency has changed over time, particularly with regard to transfusions and considerations around chelation. You know, really good question. And it's so interesting to speak with you, Dr. Nathan, about your history, because I'm tracking so much along the way with you about my experience in terms of my personal care. And of course, what I remember as a child, I was in the the hands of my parents to navigate through this. And the challenges, I totally respect what they went through now because there wasn't information. And navigating in the dark, trying to find doctors that could even say what this word was and what it did. As I, I was very symptomatic as a young child. Before I was five years old, I, had, I was regularly transfused. And after five years, between five and 10 years old, what brought me into the hospital for a week for further diagnosis to figure out what this was, I was passing out constantly in school, at events. I just had no energy. In hindsight, I think my parents should have kept the transfusions going or the doctor should have just for quality of life. But after 10 years old and after the diagnosis, we just went on our little merry way back to our little town. And I started in probably around 15 years old, started getting severe abdominal pains. 
And they ran me into the local hospital and said, we got to take that spleen out. It's enlarged. And at that point, it was a small little community hospital town of less a couple thousand people. And I don't think they knew that this was related to PKD or the anemia. They just took the spleen out. Within six months, the same pain came back. And no idea what to do. They're like, we're, we don't know what to do with Jill. Let's send her off to, we went to the Mayo Clinic and within that morning of a scan, I had gallstones. And of course, nobody could tie back gallstones to PKD. I was just responding to what my body was doing to this. When I turned and got into my 20s, went into college, got married, and by the grace of God, I had a couple of kids because I had trouble with the second pregnancy, was into hemolysis pretty, and went through a number of transfusions through that. But I started, again, taking charge of my own health care, trying to find a local hematologist. And all he knew about it, now we're talking in the 1980s, early 80s. And all he said to me is just watch your iron count. It came out of nowhere, never knew what that meant. I'm like, okay. And in my mid-40s, 20 years later, I went back to the Mayo Clinic for some, just for, let's do the full assessment. Let's see what this PKD is and what they knew. It was interesting to me, and that really spoke to how rare this was, is people come from all over the world to this facility. And I was the first patient they'd ever seen with it. And this was 15 years ago at the Mayo Clinic, according to this hematologist. And he, at that point, was a pretty senior guy. He's been there a lot of years. He taught at university about it. He knew about it, but I was his first patient. And at that point, my iron was increasing and he put me on a treatment, which is very archaic. And the only way to do that was through, he said, well, let's start the um, phlebotomy track. So I've actually stopped phlebotomies as of last fall, the last 12 to 15 years, I was going in every other month. And as my hematologist crap practice changed and the different doctors I was seeing. So like, well, this doesn't make any sense. We're phlebotomizing somebody that's severely anemic and we're walking a type rope here. What do we do? And um, I did a short stint of cleation therapy. The first time I did it about 10 years ago, I reacted to it. I was, liver enzymes were out of whack. I was getting early liver damage. I did, they stopped it. I started it last fall. It brought the iron down significantly. And now I stopped that just for the fact that I'm on a new treatment, which is innately reducing my iron, which is the lowest it's been ever. But personally for me, managing this PKD has been the biggest challenge because there are just no specialists in it. I'm seeing general hematologists, which as of six months ago, she actually said to me, he goes, Jill, you're my guinea pig. I'm like, I really don't want to be a guinea pig, (laughs) but I have been the last 61 years of this. Absolutely. And my quality of life as I get older, surprisingly, seems to be getting a little bit better. I was so symptomatic as a young child and in my teens and then going through those pregnancies in my early 20s. After that, I have maintained 
um, until I really felt like I needed to go to the Mayo Clinic because my everything else was out of whack. I'm like, why do I have osteoporosis? Why am I kicking into early menopause? And again, none of the doctors over the years were connecting these dots for me. I had to connect them on my own and say, well, this all goes back to PKD. Nobody told me. I had no resources. And over the last couple of years, with the treatment now, with social media support, I'm getting more information. It's like I'm drinking out of a fire hose, learning about this rare blood disorder I've been living with for the last 61 years. The last two years, I'm finally seeing data and research and connecting the dots and being able to be more proactive with my health care and saying sometimes no to the hematologist and going in with information and documentation saying, this is what it is. This is what I know. This is what I need to have done. I need a DEXA. I need a heart MRI. We need a liver scan. (laughs) I've been proactive on all of it. And I feel so much better because I have more control because I have more data. Long question to answer to your short question, <laughs> but that's my journey. It is a, it's a remarkable journey and, and I'm impressed with your self-advocacy in recent years. I think a lot of other people with pyruvate kinase deficiency, I've heard the similar stories where it's been challenging to find a hematologist who addresses all of the different issues that come up and and can find solutions and has an understanding about which monitoring individuals need. And I wonder too, it, it sounds like you have a, an approach that you take that has worked well in recent years with your hematologist. I wonder if you have advice for other people with pyruvate kinase deficiency who are encountering the same kinds of issues when they see their practitioners. I, I would suggest to be prepared for your visits, get the information that you need about your own self-care and create your checklist. Everybody is a little bit different. And that's what I learned about the PKD is you got transfusion dependent and not transfusion dependent. I'm, I'm not transfusion dependent, which but it doesn't mean that I still need to, I still need to pay attention to when I get sick, how I feel, what my body's speaking to me, when I'm tired, when I get the flu, when I had COVID four months ago, and what does that mean and how does my body feel? But I certainly would say that to be your own advocate, create a checklist, ask for extra time with a doctor. I know doctor's times are very valuable, but ask for their time and go in with education pieces. The last couple appointments, I went in with research studies and highlighted different areas of, I think we need to take a look at this. This concerns me, what are your thoughts? And she thanked me for educating. If you can, Try to, through social media resources and people maybe in your area, as we're all connecting as a community, to ask around of what doctors are you seeing that are a little bit more adverse in PKD and that have some knowledge of it. I'm seeing a general hematologist that, again, I am her only patient that has it. So it's, I'm educating along the way and I'm also educating myself, but be diligent. And there's just a lot more resources out there today than there were 
60 years ago, 20 years ago. I'm just grateful for the generations behind me that have that today that will have future better care. And you have to be very careful because you've had a splenectomy. Mm -hmm. And that means that you're at risk of infectious diseases that for which you need a spleen for protection. So you have to be very careful about that. I'm in Nantucket Island right now. I wouldn't advise that you come here because we have very bad tick diseases here that make you very sick if you don't have a spleen. So you got you do have to be, as a patient with a very rare disease, you do have to be a body of knowledge yourself. Because most of the medical profession really has no experience of this disease. They just don't know, including most of the adult hematologists. In fact, you really have to be, uh, the way I feel the best for these patients is come, as they get older is to first get managed in a children's hospital, a big one that sees enough of these kinds of cases and hands them off to the internists as the patients get to that age. Because... That's an important, it mo, it just most hematologists will never see a case. They're too rare. I think that was fantastic advice for other people affected by pyruvate kinase deficiency and parents of children with pyruvate kinase deficiency. And you had mentioned about resources on social media. And I just want to mention also the resources of Thrive with PKD and the PKD Deficiency Foundation, which have on their websites information about monitoring and treatment and pyruvate kinase deficiency of different types so that if you're scientifically savvy, there's information there. If you prefer something more simplified, that's there too. And that way there are materials to read to bring to your appointments as you or someone in your family sees their hematologist. I'm going to change gears a little bit in our discussion and ask you both, Dr. Nathan and Jill, what excites you about pyruvate kinase deficiency care today and what are you looking forward to in the future in terms of pyruvate kinase deficiency and its management? Well, if you're asking me what excites me, what excites me is just looking at Jill because she's doing so well. <laughs> it's really, it's really remarkable. I be, be became a pediatric hematologist because of excitement. I am fascinated by these errors in biology that illustrate exactly how the body works. And I can't take my mind off these cases. I'm not, I have to say, I, I'm not a basic scientist in the sense of just looking into science. I have to see a patient like Jill so to, to have gone through this era, to have come into medicine, into hematology actually, in the 50s, and see what's happened now in 2022 is extraordinary for me. I think I've had the best life in medicine that anybody ever could have. So if you ask me what's exciting me, here I am 93 and I'm still involved. I can't believe it myself, but I won't stop thinking about these problems because we're making strides that I never believed were possible. I'm uh, Dr. Nathan, thank you. And I am so thankful for your passion and your work because it does impact 
and impacted me today. You said your your age and what you've seen, how this care has evolved. But at my age, surviving this disease is just puts me here today saying that I to see that the change of this, I was told as an adult, as a teenager, and through all these decades, that there will rarely probably be any research done on it, or there would be no treatment for PKD. You're just going to live with it. And we don't know what your roadmap looks like down the road, what your life's going to look like. And to be sitting here today, to be having this, these resources and this information is mind-boggling for me. I didn't think I'd be in this chair today having this conversation ever in my lifetime. And it's just exciting to know that the generations behind me have these resources that I'm here to share my story and saying, I survived this, it's going to be okay. You, all those mothers out there that have children with PKD, all the, anybody else out there younger than me, you're going to be okay. You've got better medical resources and not only on the physical side of dealing with PKD, but also providing back the emotional support of living with it Mm -hmm. for 60 years and what it does. And that's something that I want to get more involved with the organizations, the PKD support groups. As I get into my retirement years, this is what I want to give back, is providing that support to people that have it. And this is, I think, I was put on this planet with this rare blood disorder, and I now want to give back to others about my experiences and share that this is going to be fine. And just to have somebody to listen to that has this disease and to be able to talk about with others is amazingly healing Mm -hmm. in itself. Uh, One of my first experiences a couple of years ago, talking to a woman that has a young child with PKD. And she put her on a Zoom camera with me. And the second I saw her, it was like looking back in the mirror of my little self when I was five years old, I looked like her. Everything about her was like looking at me. And I just got emotional, started crying. And I wanted to reach over that camera and give that little girl a hug (laughs) and saying, it's going to be okay. And I'm just so grateful for the PKD community and being able to give back and share these experiences. And the science, and like I said, Dr. Nathan, all your passion and research to bring us where we're at here today. Joe, could I ask you a question? Absolutely. When you got married, did you Mm -hmm. ask your husband to get screened? No, I, I wasn't told about any type of screening. And I wasn't told. To have an enzyme check. Just to have his red soap. We didn't even think of it. Just for the fact that I didn't know that having a pregnancy could be compromising with PKD and what it would do to kick me into hemolysis. I wasn't educated by any hematologist about so this. So nobody, nobody said to you, uh, if you're getting married, at least find out whether your husband-to-be is a carrier. It, 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 that's really amazing because that would be something that, that you would think that, the, that your doctors would have said, you're getting married, which is wonderful. Would you please mm-hmm. check them out? Because right. it's such a rare disorder. But your parents were both carriers. And they didn't know. I got it. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they that, didn't know it. that you, you wouldn't be able to screen for because it's too rare. You wouldn't do that. But certainly if you're a patient, 
you ought to know what your risks are in a pregnancy. Exactly. And I didn't know that. However, after the fact, we were told to screen my two sons if they were carriers. Yeah. Yeah. Which they are not. And now fast forward today, I have four grandbabies under the age of five years old. Look healthy right now, but I do have all the kits and all the information to eventually get them screened. Yeah. And maybe this will be the end of the road of PKD in our lineage, I would hope. But fortunately, it looks good. My boys are carriers, but they did not have their spouses checked before they had children. So we'll see if my little grandbabies are carriers of this at some point as well. Great. I want to thank both of you, Jill Welly, Dr. David Nathan, for participating in the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and for sharing your powerful stories, both of you. It's been really interesting to talk with both of you about how the diagnosis and monitoring and treatment of pyruvate kinase deficiency really has changed over time. And I also am looking forward to the next five to 10 years to see how the evolution in taking care of patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency and keeping children and adults who are affected healthy, how that continues to change over time and looking forward to seeing that. So thank you so much for everything and all your contributions to today's podcast. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.